0: Hi there, and welcome to the first episode of Refugees Stories. My name is Jessica Stone, and today's story is from Khansa. I'm going to let her introduce herself.
1: I am Khansa. I am from Syria, from Homs. I live uh, here in uh, Lebanon, in al uh, Bekaa, in the Small camp with uh, some refugees from Syria. I am here in Lebanon uh, since uh, four years and I was uh, study English language and uh, now I am uh, teaching here uh, with a Syrian student. When you first meet her, Khansa appears like your typical Syrian
0: woman. She wears a hijab and long sleeves no matter how hot it gets. And in a tent, In the middle of summer, in the Bekar Valley, it can get pretty hot. She's a good wife and a loyal and loving daughter. She makes guests tea, regardless of whether they ask for it. But one important thing about her that doesn't fit the stereotype is how she's the community leader of her settlement, what's called a shawish. Shawishes, by the way, are almost always men. I mean, I'm sure there's some other female shawishes but i never met any apart from Khansa herself she never
1: even asked to be shawish it just kind of happened um, i'm not going to become shawish before me was a old man ishawish but can't read and writing mm-hmm. So and um, was some problems between uh, his between he and the people here can't uh, help them and uh, can't uh, find a good solution for them. But uh, when he was issued, some people come to me to protect uh, when uh, a new family comes from Syria or from another uh, in Arsal. I have some I uh, orga- talked with some organization to help them and uh, if you have a a healthy, a healthy uh, case, can I uh, help them with uh, some uh, organization or some uh, people to help them? Uh, some people uh, say for uh, NRC NRC uh, organization we need a new uh, shawish, we need Khansa. When I am back from school, the people tell me you become a shawish.
0: So, more specifically, Khansa is the shawish of a small settlement in the Bekaa Valley, which is in the east of Lebanon, not far from the border to Syria. And there's a lot of settlements in the Bekaa Valley, They're kind of like small shanty towns of tents and slightly dodgy-looking buildings made out of cheap material. And these settlements are really, truly everywhere. Squeezed in the empty spaces between buildings, on the edges of town, any little bit of land where it's possible to build has a settlement. And every settlement is a bit different. Some are tiny, some are huge, some feel very safe, whilst others feel, well, less safe. Some settlements are filled with people from the same ethnic group, and some are more of a mix. Only one thing is consistent. The majority of the residents are Syrian refugees. Ah. And because each settlement is a bit different, every shawisha is a bit different. Some shawishas just collect money for the landlord, operating as a sort of middleman. Others, like Khansa, are an important link between the aid organisations and the settlement's residents. Sometimes the Shawish makes sure that supplies are distributed fairly and advocates for certain families to receive a little bit more food or medical attention. They also tell the aid organisations what the residents actually need rather than what the aid organisations just assume they need. I can't even imagine how difficult it must be to keep this place calm and running relatively efficiently. And yet somehow she manages it. And it's worth mentioning that when we visited Khansa settlement, it was nice, surprisingly nice. It really stood out amongst the dozens others that I visited in the area. One common element, sadly, is that they're all pretty dirty. And I mean really dirty, overflowing with rubbish, litter just everywhere. Lebanon already has a major issue with pollution, but the settlements are on a whole new level. A lot of this is because in Lebanon you have to pay for rubbish removal services, and refugees simply can't afford that. And you have to pay really a lot of money, thousands of dollars per settlement. A crazy quantity that settlement residents have pretty much no hope of ever raising no matter how hard they try. So they all just have to try to make their lives in the midst of all this rubbish. Except in Khansa settlement, which wasn't exactly spotless, but it was much, much tidier than most others. And even better, Khansa settlement had all of these lovely little gardens outside almost every tent, filled with basil, parsley, tomatoes, eggplants, all sorts of tasty produce. Next question is, what are you most proud of
1: in your life? What has been your biggest achievement? I was a quiet girl. Uh, Better think in my life or uh, I'm proud of it. I was uh, a lovely girl in my family. And uh, here in my camp, all the... Every person loves me because I help uh, every person here, everybody here. Uh, and uh, all the children love me. And anyone have uh, problems or anything, I come to ask me so I'm I, feel I uh, do it something to help them. Uh, I am always give a hope. Always when I stay with the, some people or some women, I talk to them about the future and a happy life. And uh, all problems have a solution. So it's they uh, feel comfortable when they talk with me. And uh, with the talking, feel them very happy and feel uh, forget them some of their problems. And uh, I help them... Uh, with, um, with anything, with the personality life and with the problems and uh, all things in the camp. Khansa was quite nervous about
0: doing this interview in English, so I'll rephrase this part for her quickly. She helps the women in the camp by talking to them, distracting them from their problems, trying to find
1: solutions and maintaining peace. Here in the camp, we, uh, like if uh, uh, one family help together and uh, visit together and uh, work with together it's no problem and we uh, when we have a problem or anything uh, we all the everybody here in the camp help together to solution this problem and to make our camp better than uh, the bus so no problem with together and uh, I not um, I not feel here very very happy I lost something of my life So, but I am working and help the Syrian student and uh, complete my life uh, like the normal life As of now, in early 2017,
0: there are an estimated 65.3 million forcibly displaced people worldwide according to UNHCR Forcibly displaced is exactly what it sounds like. It just means somebody who's been forced to leave their home, because of something like war or natural disaster. This number, incidentally, is the highest it has ever been since World War II.
2: Aboard the Portuguese liner Serpa Pinto, the war's youngest refugees arrive in America to begin life anew. Wanderers upon the face of the earth they come from Poland, from Czechoslovakia, from Spain, some even from Germany, and all are made welcome.
0: World War II buffs might recognize the name Serpapinto, one of the ocean liners which transported huge quantities of refugees from Europe to America.
2: Today, under auspices of the United States Committee for the Care of European Children, they finally reach a haven of safety.
0: Many of these refugees, of course, were Jewish, fleeing the Holocaust. And they and their descendants continue to live on in the USA today.
2: The Red Cross meets hungry stomachs with food and fresh milk, a language that any child understands. Yes, after months of an insufficient diet, this to them is truly the promised land.
1: I I prefer when I was a child because I not have a problems or uh, anything to carry. So only I want to play and eat and. But now, and, um, and more than after we become refugee in Lebanon, we found all things hard and difficult to complete your life or to do what you want or um, to complete your dreams. So it's hard. When we, yes, this is the most change in our life. When we, I was, we was in serial life in our houses and uh, in normal life. And when we, when we become uh, refugees, so it's the, uh, yes, this is the big difference and big changes. And of that enormous number of forcibly displaced
0: people, 21.3 million are refugees. This means that 21.3 million people worldwide have been forced not just from their home, but also from their country. And of that number, roughly 1.1 million refugees are registered in Lebanon. Which, I know, after hearing all of those unfathomably large numbers, doesn't seem like that many. But the thing is, the population of Lebanon itself is about 4 million which means that Lebanon has the highest per capita number of refugees in the entire world. Roughly one in every four people is a refugee there. And just for comparison, the refugee population in Greece is around 60,000. And Lebanon is a country 13 times smaller than Greece. Geographically, Lebanon is minuscule. It's smaller than Belgium or even the state of Connecticut. Even worse, these figures aren't even accurate. UNHCR Lebanon has temporarily suspended new registration of refugees under the instructions of the Lebanese government. This happened on the 6th of May, 2015. So about two years ago from the recording of this podcast. So this means that for the past two years, we don't have any reliable figures. And according to most aid workers or volunteers in the area, there's probably a sizeable population of unregistered refugees. To make matters even worse, Lebanon is far from the ideal place for such an enormous number of refugees. Lebanon is not party to the 1951 Refugee Convention and has not allowed the UN to set up formal camps for Syrian refugees. The things in the 1951 Refugee Convention are pretty important. I mean, this is an international treaty which was created as a direct response to the enormous quantities of refugees in Europe post-World War II. And as I mentioned before, right now, the international crisis of forcibly displaced people has reached heights not seen since, well, World War II.
2: Along every road in endless procession, refugees stream toward collecting stations set up by the Allied military government. Many helpless families made homeless by the German seizure of their country were forced north during the Nazi retreat. Stripped of most of their possessions, only a few were adequately clothed or fed until the Allied 5th Army landed.
0: Basically, the treaty defines what refugees are and outlines their rights when seeking asylum. One of those important rights is the right not to be sent back home into harm's way. Other rights listed in the treaty include the right to housing, right to work, access to education, access to public assistance, stuff like that.
2: Moving these helpless people from the ruins of their shattered homes is one of the great rescue achievements of the war. The real tragedy is the plight of the very young. The world into which they were born has been a world of suffering and sorrow.
0: This is because, by the very definition of refugee, refugees aren't protected by their own governments and don't have any of those things anymore. And the international community is meant to step in and look after them.
2: Now the Allied authorities opened the way to a new haven, a haven where they may wait in safety for the day of peace. As swiftly as possible, army trucks take them to ports of embarkation.
0: Not being party to the convention is a big deal. This means that anything listed in the 1951 Refugee Convention, Lebanon follows only because it chooses to not because it really has to. Refugees do have access to education, for instance, but the right to work, not so much, particularly depending on their country of origin. The government has been very clear that Lebanon isn't a country of asylum, nor a country of resettlement, and it isn't likely to budge on this point. And interestingly, in Lebanon, officially all the refugees live in informal settlements rather than camps. This is partly because of security concerns. I mean, let's think about Lebanon's history for a moment, and how refugees have impacted that history. For example, in 1948, when Israel was formed, 400,000 Palestinians fled to Lebanon. Many of these Palestinians and their descendants continue to live in UN refugee settlements in Lebanon, seven decades later.
1: Yes, you heard correctly. I said decades, not years. Uh, we now, um, five years now here in the Lebanon and stay in the tents. Maybe I thought uh, we will complete our life in the tents.
0: And this Palestinian refugee crisis had a huge impact on Lebanon. After a couple of decades in those refugee camps I mentioned earlier, it is true that some Palestinian refugees militarised, which then made them a target for Israeli raids, and finally an invasion in 1978, and then again in 1982. And internally in Lebanon itself, those armed Palestinian factions were also considered to have fueled the sectarian civil war between Maronite Christian, Shia and Sunni Muslim factions. You probably already know that this had catastrophic consequences. Between 1975 and 1990, 20,000 people died in the Lebanese civil war and about one million Lebanese people fled. Of course, I don't mention this to imply that accepting refugees will lead to civil war, but it's important to note that whether or not Palestinian refugees actually contributed significantly to the outbreak of the Lebanese civil war, the belief that they did has impacted the situation today. It's made the government cautious of letting history repeat itself, and the population similarly cagey about wholeheartedly welcoming their neighbours. And just as a note... Palestinian refugees are often some of the most vulnerable, partly because of the local distrust of Palestinians, but also because they just have less rights than Syrians and have usually been displaced not just once, but twice. Anyway, to the credit of Lebanon, despite all of this tension and concern about the past repeating itself, at the beginning of the crisis, the Lebanese population did extend an enormous amount of hospitality, there was also an international response from many NGOs. And although the aid has reduced significantly over the years, the impact of this aid is very clear in the settlements for the refugees
1: themselves.
2: What do you think about rich countries? Do you, th- you think they have helped you?
1: My friends?
2: No, you're rich
1: countries. They are rich. They yeah can مثلاً هل ممكن I thought yes. A lot of the organization help us here in Lebanon, like UNHR and the NRC, SALAM. Yes, a lot. But I not know if this a rich from the rich country. How do you say that? I Mhm. Uh can you help the Syrian Syria, no, no. no, from from Syria, rich country.
0: I oh, no, I mean from Europe America uh,
1: Yes, help refugees. I in my thought, yes I have a help a refugees like give a money to some organization and this organization studied the, the Solu to the solution no, the problems with the uh, mm-hmm. Arabians um, and serve some food, the clothes, uh, oil for winter. Yes
0: Just a quick note here. I know it seems like winter in the Bekaa shouldn't be cold, because after all, it's in the Middle East, which is all desert and heat, right? Well, it can actually get pretty cold, cold enough to snow. And it gets wet and rainy and windy. And of course, most refugees aren't in real houses. They're in temporary structures made out of cheap wood, not designed to last, let alone have adequate insulation. Oil for winter is a big deal for refugees because it's often the only way they can heat their homes. On the 31st of March, 2017, during a conference in Brussels, The Prime Minister of Lebanon, Saad al-Khariri, said that Lebanon had reached a breaking point and that if it continued as it was, he feared civil unrest in the future. And here he is, explaining the situation during that very conference.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, the current situation in Lebanon is a ticking time bomb. This is the story of 4 million Lebanese hosting 1.5 million displaced Syrians added to a half a million Palestinian refugees already in Lebanon. It's as if 500 million European Union citizens suddenly woke up to an increase of 250 million people overnight.
0: But why exactly are there so many Syrians in Lebanon specifically? Part of the reason is obvious. Lebanon is right next door. But it's also partly because the two countries have been intertwined, so to speak, for decades. There's this complex sense of duty, or a concept of a relationship or brotherhood between the two countries, even though this idea of brotherhood has been strained and tested over time. After all, during the 2006 Lebanon-Israel War, many Lebanese found refuge in Syria. Many Lebanese, particularly the Muslims, Considered it their duty to look after the Syrians when the tables were turned, and it was the Syrians who needed aid. But now, years later, with no end in sight and a struggling economy, feelings have shifted. And of course, Lebanon has always been a delicately balanced and sectarian country, trying to somehow balance the often opposing needs of the multiple strands of both Islam and Christianity that live there. And the Syrians are not only present in huge numbers, but they're also tipping the ever-fragile equilibrium between Christianity and Islam. So it's not exactly surprising that in a 2013 poll, 52% of Lebanese interviewees believed that Syrian refugees are a threat to national security and stability. Another crucial element worth mentioning is that Lebanon and Syria have a complex and somewhat fraught history, even apart from, or maybe because of all of that brotherhood stuff. Syria only recognised Lebanon as a state in 2008, because for many decades, Syrian nationalists viewed Lebanon as part of an historic Greater Syria. Also, during the Lebanese Civil War in 1976, Syria entered Lebanon as part of an Arab peacekeeping force. A mere 29 years later, they eventually left. At one point, Syria apparently had more than 30,000 soldiers in Lebanon. During peacetime, it gained almost exclusive control of Lebanon's politics and economy. Syrian interference was considered responsible either directly or indirectly, for the assassination of former Prime Minister Rafik al-Hariri and for various other attacks on politicians and journalists. Even after the withdrawal of Syrian troops, there was still suspicion that Syrian intelligence was at work. And during this period of occupation by Syria, it goes without saying that many Lebanese people were personally affected by the Syrian occupational forces and hostilities between Syrian troops and armed Lebanese groups.
1: Now I stopped here, I only I went to live, not to, to, uh, uh, to do my dreams or to do what I want.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that because it's very difficult to do this in Lebanon?
1: Yes. Yes, and here in Lebanon, all think it's very expensive. We must to order our things so the healthy before it's sick and the food and to complete our life. So last thing I, uh, last thing when I uh, thought in my life or in my personal personality. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Um, do you mean that it's so difficult to make sure that you have food and you have you know, enough uh, resources that you don't have energy to think about your own future your own dreams, is this what you're saying?
1: It's this um, uh, life needed so I want to do that Mm. but um, it's hard. I to it's hard for a big family or uh, a family have a healthy situation. So we will, must work hard uh, more than before. Mm. I uh, I prefer when I was a child because I not have a problems or uh, anything to carry. So only I want to play and eat and but now and. Uh, and more than after we become refugee in Lebanon, we found all things hard and difficult to complete your life or to do what you want or um, to complete your dreams. So it's hard.
0: And I don't need to tell you that Khansa can't just go home. She's from Homs, a small city in West Syria. You might have heard of Comus because it's often referred to as the capital of the revolution. On the 17th and 18th of April 2011, tens of thousands of people gathered there to protest against Bashar al-Assad's government. At least 62 people were killed by government forces. Qomis was then under siege for three years. You've probably seen photos or aerial footage of the widespread devastation in Aleppo. Well, commerce is a little bit like that. I looked up data for just how much damage has been done, but all the figures are out of date. And to be honest, I don't think those figures can really express the truth of the matter, which is that the city is truly unlivable. Khansa came to Lebanon for good reason. So what was your childhood like? You said you used to play a lot.
1: It's better, uh, better time in my life. When uh, first think when I was in my house in Syria, not to stay in the tent like here. And uh, we have, we was uh, study, and I was complete my study there in Syria. But. Uh, Now I stopped here, I only I want to live. All the Syrians, not have dreams for future, only to live day by the next day. So, only we want to live.
0: And even worse than all of this damage is the complete lack of resources in Qomus. Authorities have regularly blocked deliveries of medicine, food and fuel to parts of the city. Journalists and NGOs report that some remaining locals have been forced to eat grass, bugs, whatever they can get. What food is available is obscenely, impossibly expensive. One of the mainstays of the Syrian diet, bread, used to be subsidised, but now it isn't. In fact, the price of all food has increased several times over. And it's not like the economy is booming either, what with years of war. What do you think about war? as a person who has had to leave your country because of war?
1: It's hard thing. I not love the war. It's very, very difficult to live in the war. So it's a bad thing, in my opinion. And not to give us safe uh, our uh, rights and uh, all things.
0: Did you know anybody back in Syria who was fighting?
1: no all the everybody leaves syria and uh, want to save and uh, live in in a safely safe life like only that no and we not have a houses all uh, all the houses uh, damaged or uh, destroyed so we not have anything in syria we love freedom, so here in Lebanon, I and my husband, we can't uh, go to outside Zahle or outside Albiqa because we not have a legal paper, so only stay here in the camp and in the work. It's obviously not safe for Khansa to return home to Syria, but she's not completely secure
0: in Lebanon either. There are so many different reasons that refugees might not have legal paperwork to be in Lebanon. Most Syrians came to Lebanon not just because it's close by, but more importantly, because Syrian citizens don't need a visa or passport to enter Lebanon. Unlike Jordan or Turkey, two other neighbouring countries, Syrians automatically get a six-month visitor pass to Lebanon just with their national ID card. Sounds great, right? Well, the problem is that the government of Lebanon generally only allows it to be renewed once, and it's expensive. And the criteria for renewal became more complicated and expensive in 2015. Now all Syrian refugees need to provide official documents of their place of residence and certificates of employment for visa renewal. Or, if they don't work, they need to sign documents stating that they won't seek employment. And by the way, these documents cost a mere $1,375 US dollars for a one-year stay for a family of five, according to UNHCR. And even worse, according to Human Rights Watch, officials have been known to abuse their positions, asking Syrians to provide documentation that isn't required, or even asking for bribes or sexual favors. This means that refugees either have to go back to Syria and re-enter to restart their visitor pass, or just stay put and hope for the best. I don't need to tell you that returning to Syria is possibly risky. Apart from the ongoing war in Syria, the mere act of returning could be used as an argument for losing refugee status. After all, if you're able to return to your home country, how can you prove that you're really a refugee? Although apparently UNHCR doesn't tend to discount people as refugees if they've been back to Syria, because they recognise that it's typically the cheapest and easiest way to restart a visitor pass, there are concerns that it could be used as a potential reason for denying somebody resettlement in the future does it get boring
1: yes it's very hard maybe it's very hard more than for the man mean because maybe they tell him to to leave Lebanon. So it's hard and maybe we have the problem. so it's better for us and to stay in the same place.
0: Of course, anybody who's ever been stuck in the same place for an extended period of time can imagine how stir-crazy a person could get staying in the same tent for years. Life in the settlements isn't just boring, but it can also be profoundly isolating. Very few refugees were able to come over to Lebanon in an orderly manner. Most fled in total chaos. Many families were split up and friends lost contact. And after losing contact with a fellow refugee, it's very, very hard to find them again.
1: I have a friend when she was my neighborhood and my uh, classmate and uh, we forget us or we left us in the situation before four years. She go to the British with uh, uh, UNICEF or NUHR and I come here to Lebanon. So I not have enough phone number for her and uh, yes. How long had you two been friends? Nine years, maybe. We was uh, friends, uh, neighborhood, and friends, and studied together. So I love her so much. Yeah. What were your parents like? Yeah, I love my father and my mother so much, and they was very lovely parents, and a nice. Uh, in Syria, my father was working to help us to complete our study, and my mom helped us in the house to, to serve us and to make us very comfortable and uh, happy. But uh, we not see my father before uh, four years, too, and we not know any news about her. What about your mother? My mother here with my brothers. And uh, she works now, and uh, she old uh, old um, old women, but she do with that to help my brothers.
0: I'm really sorry to hear that.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: of course, remember if you don't want to talk about something, you can stop
1: any time. <laughs> Do you have any brothers and sisters? Yes. I uh, have uh, six brothers and, uh, yes, and two sisters. Um, the My oldest brother in Turkey, and we not have seen uh, his before uh, three years. Uh, and another my brothers and my sister here in Lebanon, was uh, um, near me, yes.
0: It's what a big family! Yeah. <laughs> that was common in Syria. Yes, to have
1: such a big family. It is a lot of families have uh, a lot of the childrens in Syria. That's our traditionals. What about
0: you? How many children do
1: you have? I I'm not having children now here in Lebanon. So maybe when we back to Syria and in the future, inshallah. <laughs>
0: Out of everybody I interviewed, Khanza was the only person who had decided not to have
1: children in Lebanon. How did you come to Lebanon? Yes, it's a. Uh, we was stay in Hamas in a village next to uh, Lebanese. We was in the border between Lebanese and Syria, but uh, we can't come. Uh, we have only one hour and maybe half hour between Syria and Lebanon. But it's hard to us to cut this uh, border because uh, found some checkpoint for the Syrian armies. So when we come in the mountain. And we, four days to arrive to Lebanon. We was walking, four days. And it uh, was a hard uh, days for me. And when we was having, uh, some women have uh, children and in people with us. And uh, we was uh, old women and old uh, men with us. It's hard to us. And we was not have a lot of water. And uh, yeah, it's very, very hard was for us. Just as a note, the actual difference
0: between Khoms and Arsel is about eighty kilometres, more or less as the crow flies. And when you arrived, um, what did you find, or did yes. you just arrive and there was nothing?
1: This village in the East Lebanon was very small, so a lot of the Syrians was there and not have um, a lot of houses or uh, coming to take all these people. We was uh, two days, sleep two days in the village in Arsal. After that, uh, some of the organization uh, helped us and uh, Give us a uh, house when we have work, or when we have uh, a good place to uh, to sleep or to borrow. So here, some organization helped us and gave us some food, some clothes, because we not have anything uh, before when we arrived. This tiny village in East Lebanon, Arsal, was a major site for the
0: early humanitarian response. By early 2014, there were roughly 40,000 refugees living there in total, according to UNHCR. But according to the town mayor, Ahmed Fethi, if you count the tents on the borders, the number may even have been as high as 80,000. I'm sure it's unsurprising to note that tensions often ran high between the locals and the refugees. The limited resources of Arsul were stretched far beyond breaking point. Power cuts were frequent, jobs were guess and even worse not long after war broke out in Arsal too
1: first we was stay in East Libanon in Arsal uh, we stay in the house but we not have a good work and uh, it's hard to find a work so we stay in the camp but some after uh, maybe one years uh, one and a half years uh, a war uh, started in Arsal and uh, the fire eating our camping and our, uh, yes, all uh, our properties, propers. So after that we left the Irsal and come to here and uh, working to have uh, a, tent, a new tent and complete our life. On the 2nd of August, 2014,
0: fighters from Al-Nusra Front, the Syrian branch of Al-Qaeda until 2016 when it broke off, and ISIL, also called ISIS, took control of the town where Khansa was living. 42 civilians were killed, and 400 were wounded in the battle for Asa. Two of those dead civilians were infant Syrian refugees. Khansa and her family had come to Lebanon to be safe, but they had not come far enough. So, understandably, they moved deeper into Lebanon, into
1: the Beqar Valley.
0: And this was with your husband that you
1: came. Yes, and my family and my family with me. So he was in the same camp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, could
0: you tell us a little
1: bit about your husband, if you don't mind? My husband, very, very kindly and uh, lovely man. He studied law, and he is another not complete her study third year, and. Um, he helped some people in uh, mountain when we come and help some women to and carry the children with them and uh, he was working in Syria in the situation uh, as a nurse nurse and helped some in general with, uh, when we was uh, coming in the mountain and now working a hard uh, thing in Hajar, uh, um, in the stone. But he wants to work to help her mother and her uh, mm-hmm. brother. Yeah. And also he lost her father and her brother died in the war. Mm-hmm. So. Um,
0: do you think that he has
1: hopes of returning to do his law degree in Syria? Or his is Muhammad in Syria? He was working uh, under the law, he was working in Syria, but the situation stopped her, Mm -hmm. stopped his. What about yourself, do you think when you go
0: back to Syria, you will go back to university?
1: Maybe. Maybe. I dreamed to complete my university, but no problem. If I not complete, maybe the the my children or my brothers or uh, my uh, students complete in the
2: future. And
1: uh, I uh, I know the God. I uh, all my. Uh, dreams or problems or anything, I uh, talked with my God to help me and pray for God to help me. So now I am am more uh, believed more than in the past. Mm,
0: That's interesting. You're not the first person to talk about finding um, a deeper connection to God. Why do you think that is?
1: Because um, the God, uh, can do it anything, maybe, and he help us and can uh, back us to Syria. And uh, he is the God, so... Change yes, change anything. Need a lot of time to uh, ch- uh, to change the situation in Syria, maybe more than 10, uh, 10 years. No, only my, this is my opinion. But it's hard for us.
0: Is this why you don't have children at the moment? Because you don't want to have children in the tents? Yes.
1: It's hard to complete the same life in the tent. In the summer, very hot. In the winter, very cold. And we not have, um, we not stay in the same place. Maybe every three months, four months, we change the, the earth. So we not live uh, safely. The gut can't change all things, but maybe sometimes we feel tired.
0: That was the first episode of Refugee Stories. Here I would like to quote Warsonshire Shire from her book Teaching My Mother How to Give Birth No one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. And now to wrap up This episode was made in association with Salam LADC a small but feisty NGO working in the Bekar Valley right now If you would like to contribute money to Khansa, her settlement or people like her, please go to www.salamladc.org. That's www.salamladc.org ladc.org If you want the money to go to Khansa settlement specifically, please write the name Khansa, that's K H A N S A A on your donation. And Salam will talk to Khansa about the best way to invest the money in the settlement itself so that it reaches as many people as possible. And an enormous and very grateful thanks to Hassan Chubasi one of the very best translators in all of the Beqar Valley, as far as I'm concerned. Further thanks go to Guillaume Jimenez my awesome infield assistant, for his patience and calmness. And also to Mohamed Hamoud, being an invaluable source of advice and knowledge about Lebanon. I've asked Mohamed so many things, and his generosity and help is truly a testament to the kind-hearted nature of Lebanese people. For their feedback and editing help, thanks go to Justine Boya, Stacey Gagoulas, Emma Hat, Laren Matter, Kristen Negrotti, Maria Stakier, and Miranda White. Without the hard work of all of these people, this project simply would not exist. Thank you also to Miguel Soto-Sanchez for listening to me obsess about this project and being so patient about it. Also, thanks to my brother, Nick Stone, for answering my weird questions about audio. For the music, thanks go to Axeltree, Alpha Male, Orchestra Kaif, Yunan, Youssef Kekia, and Bishir Hafiz. Yunan grew up in Aleppo and was the first Middle Eastern artist ever to crowdfund her debut, and it's her song Maltini which you're listening to right now. Youssef Kekia and Bishir Hafiz are also Syrian musicians, currently living in Istanbul. They're responsible for the beautiful cover of a Palestinian folk song which played during the episode. You can find more information about where to buy their music and full credits in the show notes. And really, please do. Thank you also to Khansa and all the other refugees who trusted me, let me into their homes and told me their stories. I can only hope that these stories go out into the world and help others to understand the situation. And finally, my name is Jessica Stone. I'm the writer and producer of this podcast. Thank you for listening to Hansa's Story.